Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. What's the hardest thing you've ever done? The thing everyone said was impossible, that you knew you had to do anyway, and that you doubted a thousand times while it was underway that you'd be able to see through to the end. There's a good chance you can think of at least one example, and an even better chance it doesn't even come close in monumental soul-smelting intensity to what Tracy Edwards put herself through back in 1989 to 1990, along with the all-female crew of her racing yacht, Maiden. In that year, with the dismissive, derisive, mostly male eyes of the racing world upon them, this 12-member crew proved beyond a doubt that they could sail every bit as skillfully and fearlessly as their male competitors in the Whitbread Round the World Yacht Race. They crossed the Southern Ocean from Uruguay to Australia, surviving icebergs and deadly waves to win the most difficult leg of their race, and then beat their closest rival move for move in a tactical sprint to New Zealand. By the time they made it home to England, derision had long given way to admiring awe. Tracy and her crew did a thing everyone thought was impossible, and in doing so, they gave hope to countless others. The documentary film Maiden, out from Sony Pictures Classics, captures every leg of their incredible journey and shows the full cost and rewards of Tracy's single-minded persistence. Welcome to Think Again, Thank Tracy. you so much. Thank you. I don't know anything about sailing, and this was the first time that I had encountered this story. It is extraordinary. I mean, it seems to me that it's crazy for anyone to do what you guys did, like a male, female, whatever, um, but then to take that on against... I mean, it's, it's not as if it's against the odds. Of course you guys could do it, but against the... Common belief. Yeah, just the general hostility, I guess, of the male world is is really amazing. I don't think we expected quite as much hostility <laughs> as we got. Uh, it was, and I knew there'd be naysayers and people who'd say, I, oh, we don't think you can do it. And I think really, I think because we all went through a developmental stage of why we wanted to do what we did, I think that's really what kept us on track. In mean, a way, in the years leading up to the race, or yeah, or, I and, think and I think the reasons that we did it were hugely important, and it is only the documentary that has actually made me realise that. So when I did the eighty-five, eighty-six Whitbread Round the World race, I did it with seventeen guys. Right. I was the only girl on a on an ocean racing maxi, and out of the two hundred and thirty crew that did that race, only three of us were girls. And I, I mean, I loved the race and I loved the sailing and everything else, but I didn't want to go around again cooking for 17 men. I mean, sure. I couldn't think of anything worse. It was smelly and <laughs> noisy and the men take up a lot of room. So I, as I was getting towards the end of the race, I thought, this is like the world's best kept secret. I uh -huh. know women who would love to do this race. And it's not that hard if I can do it. So Yeah, it um, seems like a, a brilliant but also an obvious idea. Why not? Why had nobody thought of that? But then Exactly. Then did, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I just thought, well, I, I want to be an I'm a navigator. So I wanted to navigate on the next Whitbread Around the World race. And I thought, that's never gonna happen. Right. Unless I change the world as it exists around me. My mum always used to say, if you don't like the way the world looks, change it. Don't moan, don't whine about it, change right. it. So I thought, how can I how can I change it? So I thought, well, if I put my own project together, I can choose myself as navigator. That'll work. And then I thought, and if I put an all-female crew together, we can prove at the same time that women can race around the world. So it kind of came together in that way. 
Um, I think if I'd started off with this big, you know, women's empowerment thing, I, I might not have made it. But because it was so practical yeah. and logical and a step towards my goals was quite selfish, I went into it with a certain agenda and a certain frame of mind. And so therefore, when this wave of hostility hit me, I was immovable because this is what I want to do. Later on, the more this stuff happened, I became more and more, okay, this is bigger than me. This is bigger than right, Maiden. Right. We have got to do this for every woman everywhere, not just in sailing, but for everything. Do you know what I also learned is that one person fighting for their own rights is not as powerful as 12 women fighting for the rights of every woman on the planet. <laughs> That's powerful <laughs> stuff. <laughs> you know, we all, we've all talked after the film. We've all watched it. Actually, the first time we watched it was a year ago today. Exactly a year ago today. And uh, we had a sneak preview of the film. We all loved it. I feel I would have been crying. I'm sure there oh, was... Oh, we were all crying. I, I didn't want to resurrect the specter of the evil press that used to focus on a false idea of women's emotionality. I think anybody in that, I think everyone should have been crying. Oh, men, men walk out of the <laughs> cinema going, thank yeah. goodness it was dark in there. I think what Alex has done oh, so beautifully with this film I mean, he's told our story and he wasn't there. And I mean, really, well, the first time I met Alex, I mean, I'd just been through quite a difficult time in my life. And so my trust in people wasn't hugely high. Um, right, right. But I did a talk at his daughter's school. and This is after some people backed out of a venture is the difficult time. Yeah. So um, I, I did a big race in the Middle East. They didn't pay me yeah, and yeah. Uh, I lost everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so... But, you know, if you're a risk taker, you have to also understand that it might not work. So, OK, it worked on three projects before that. But then, you know, you take a risk. You yeah. You had, again, as you did here, put everything into yeah. it and committed 100 percent. Yeah. Well, I don't think you can ask other people to commit unless you've committed. So right. and I think that's very powerful. Yeah. So I was kind of really getting back on my feet. This is five years ago now uh, when I first met him. Right. And I gave a talk at his daughter's school. and He came up to me afterwards. He went, that was so amazing. He said, have you thought about making a film? And I said, well, thought about it, but never really got around to it. And he was talking about a drama, you know, with scripts and an oh, actress okay. and everything else. And right. I, he sort of saw the look on my face and he said, um, well, like, you obviously, you know, you wouldn't have any footage. I said, yeah, we have. We filmed all of it. He went, he said, my love is documentaries. <laughs> and I, you filmed all of it. I went, oh, yeah, we've, you know, for all the footage. And the second question was, where is it? And I went, I've no idea. I mean, I don't have uh. a clue because we were one of the volunteers' boats to take cameras, but we handed all our footage over at each stopover to the race committee because they'd given us the cameras to make a program about the race. So while you're doing this round the world journey, who's filming? Joe, the cook. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so she said, we said, we'll take the cameras. And then we went, oh, who's going to film? And Joe went, well, I'm not doing a watch. I'll film. Uh, so we went, okay. Sent her off to the BBC for four days, training with the camera four days. I mean, just extraordinary. She came back. We did practice with the cameras, which I think was really important because we discovered very quickly that if it's all hands on deck, I mean, the first time we had an emergency on deck, she came up with the camera and I went, you can put that down right now. Right, right, We need right. your hands, not the camera. So we thought, still, well, what are we going to do about this? She um, filmed under some pretty grueling conditions. Oh, yeah. I mean, we see, like, w would she be strapped to something filming? I we mean, were always, always harnessed yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. I was... Because I don't swim very well, so I, I'm 
quite fanatical about people clipping on. Mm. Uh, you know, just also the fact is that we have to go back and get you and you're not dead. I'll kill you because we really <laughs> lost that race. So, you know, right, that right, leg. Right. So, but then we fixed the second camera to the radar mast. So the footage that you now see on the film, which makes you slightly queasy because it's moving with the boat, that's the camera on, on the radar mast. And so the last, per if it was all hands on deck, the last person I used to push the panic button and it would film everything. And okay. I think we got some extraordinary footage you um, sure did. doing that and joe has this extraordinary emotional intelligence you know and she the way she filmed was so intimate i mean you, you can see moments of real vulnerability in all of us which we probably wouldn't have liked anyone to see so 30 years is perfect because we're all we don't care what people think of us now you know we're all <laughs> thoughts you know we can do what we like say what we want so there's a real skill, I think, that Alex, uh, you know, has brought in in bringing all this stuff together. It took him two years to find the, the footage. It took him a long time to find the money. Going into archives of uh, the... All over the world. Oh, wow. Everywhere. It had been wow. cut, recorded, thrown away, recorded again. <laughs> you know, it was here, there and everywhere. My mum had boxes full of videotapes that, where she taped every news item ever done. I have to say, my mum was uh, amazing. God bless her. Uh, yeah. I know. Oh, she said to me, one day you'll be thankful. And she's absolutely right. I am so thankful. Thankful. And so is Alex, because that gave him a roadmap, if you like, to kind of see where this footage might be. But mm. you see, the, the irony of this is they couldn't find the funding to make the documentary. And it's like, <laughs> here we are here again. We are again. <laughs> what, what's going on? Uh, yeah, we should tell the, the listeners that after you announced that you were going to put the crew together and enter the 89-90 race, you spent like four years running around trying to get yeah. funding Ultimately, and this is the craziest bit of serendipity, King Hussein of Jordan, who you had met in earlier days yeah. when you were working on a charter yacht, ultimately having exhausted every possibility yeah. and people just basically being like, ah, they're an unknown quantity. We can't take the risk. You call him up and then Royal Jordanian Airlines sponsors the thing. Well, he'd been so supportive, really, because <laughs> I'd met him before the 85-86 race. Right. And um, we used to speak to him on the radio because he was a ham radio fanatic. <laughs> King Hussein was a collector of people. If he found someone fascinating, he wanted them in his life. And mm. there were many of us that he supported, men and women from all over the world. And so putting Maiden together, the first thing I did was fly out to Jordan and I met with him and uh, his family. And, you know, I said, what do you think? He said, you've got to do this. This is a mm. game changer. So he was always there in the background supporting. But when I finally got to the point where I thought, I've got to ask for help, I cannot find this money. And I called him and he said, I did wonder, you know, uh, I was waiting for the call. <laughs> uh, so he said, Royal Jordanian Airlines will sponsor this. We flew over to meet the chief executive, Ali Gandor, who's, again, a very special and wonderful man who just thought this was incredible. And uh, that's why Maiden is painted that beautiful grey colour with the red and gold stripes, because that's the colour of their aeroplanes. Oh, OK. okay. So, and she was so distinctive in these wonderful colours, which she still is in now. And uh, that was the moment we thought, we're going to be on the start line. You all had bought a second-hand uh, yeah. boat, but it's money to restore, to finish the restoration, and to enter the race itself, I would guess. And yeah, well, it's, um, you know, you have to pay the crew wages. Right. You've got the shore crew as well. You know, we had six shore crew, 12 crew, um, one reserve crew that member that flew around the world with us. You have hotels and the stopovers, sure. food, flights for the shore crew. I mean, it, it's a lot of stuff, infrastructure that you have to put together to do this event. And we wanted to do it properly. I wouldn't have crossed the start line if we just had to do it kind of piecemeal or, you know, sort of 
not quite 100% for me. It had to be everything because if we got this wrong, every woman that came after us would have us around their neck like a millstone and everyone would be going, see, the last ones couldn't do it, so you won't be able to do it either. Right. So the sense, the weight of this responsibility was that we have got to be exemplary. We have got to look and sound and be a professional ocean racing crew. I thought more than once while watching it that this could not have been more powerful and more dramatic had it been a scripted $100 million Spielberg production. It is incredible, the footage and the way it was put together. But I think one of the most inspiring things about it is the fact of the difficulties that were involved emotionally and the ups and downs. And, you know, you say something, I think toward the end of the film, you say basically like, this crew trusted me. They took a chance on me. I was a, and am a deeply flawed human being, and it didn't matter. Yeah. And like with all those those ups and downs, I think I think that that's the most important thing, you know, for people to see that like it's not just so. that you can yeah. like power your way through, yeah. but that even when you're doing that, yeah. there's difficulty. Well, we all have frailties, and none of yeah. us are perfect. I think for me, I love what Alex has done with the film, in as much as. I speak to young girls who've seen the film and I talk to them afterwards and they say exactly what I hoped they would, which is I don't actually have to be perfect <laughs> to get through life and do amazing things. And you're like, yes, that that would be my message to every young woman out there. You know, I think there's an unrealistic expectation upon women to wear the right things, to say the right things, to behave in a certain way. And as well as striving for your dream and working hard for your goals. And it's, as I say, unrealistic and it's messy, yeah. you know, and you, and you have to just dive in and get on with it. Yeah, there were times when you were essentially debilitated with depression and I guess the others, the, you know, that's where a crew really matters. That's, oh, yeah. that's where the cohesion of the crew matters. At that point, others have to step up both to support you and to keep the thing going. Yeah, you know, you are only as strong as your weakest link and we were all the weakest link at one point. But you love your friends despite their um, little idiosyncrasies, you know, <laughs> and uh, the support that we all gave each other was it was off the scale. It was quite phenomenal. I think other teams are actually a little bit jealous of us, you know, this, mm -hmm. this amazing friendship we had, because by the time we crossed the start line, we'd pretty much been together for two years on and off. Um, we'd built our own boat pretty much. Right. Uh, we had battled so hard to get to the start line. So when we crossed the start line, we were a cohesive, bonded strong, powerful team. Mm. Some of the other boats had just taken on crew the day before. What was a disadvantage, which was the struggle, actually became a huge advantage because when we crossed that start line, we were battle-hardened and ready to go. There's also a certain complacency, I guess, for the men in the sense that, I mean, obviously they're all fierce competitors, oh, yeah, but, but they've done it before and they're not Well, they didn't see us coming, insurmount. that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it seems to me that going through that kind of experience, it's the sort of thing that just like, by the way that brains work would indelibly burn itself into your memory. But I'm wondering, coming back to it all these years, both in the final film and in the footage that went into revisiting that, mm. that stuff, what insights you might have had or what seemed different to you or what you discovered? My abiding memory from watching the film for the first time is that I was quite surprised watching myself. I... I couldn't quite reconnect with this young woman I saw <laughs> up on screen. And the thing that really made me laugh was I, I look back at that time in my memory, 
I'm a bit of an idiot, you know, a bit of a twit, just kind of lurching from one, you know, situation to the other. And then I watch this woman on screen and I'm like, actually, you're quite together. <laughs> That's surprising because that is not how I remember it. Um, she now, was everyone, a tough person. I mean, they... And everyone else remembers me like that, <laughs> but I don't. So it was... It was quite a relief, really, to see that I was doing these interviews without any media training uh, and sounding quite calm and knowledgeable. I know inside I was scared and panicking and going, what am I doing? If anything, yeah, you come off as very steely-eyed. You know, I'm talking to you now and there is just a a warmth and a kind glow coming from you, which happens at certain moments when you have the luxury of that <laughs> in the film, you know, like when you win a leg of yeah, the yeah. race right but for the most of the time you're just you're like hard as nails yeah yeah <laughs> and that's hard to, to think about as well i mean god we've all mellowed i have to say we've all been in new york together and it's been so great you know we've, we've just slipped straight back into and what's so funny is we're kind of all step back into our character roles you know so oh, wow. sally's the joker angela's the queen <laughs> of the one-liners and you know we we just get straight back into it so I think we've all matured and mellowed in the same way, which is mm. that um, you get to a point in your life where you don't care what people think of you. And, you know, you will pretty much say what you think. I was much more tactful when I was that age. I mean, I got asked some really horrendous questions and I had to stop myself launching myself over that space and punching the person opposite me. Howard stopped me doing that. <laughs> um, yeah, whereas well, I, now I'm I'm much more kind of, well, that's what you think. Um, you know, I think different and uh, yeah, a bit we more should, mellow. We should point out that the press reaction there were like a, several strains of it that came up. One is just the sort and it, both the press and from the... And we also heard from competitors, you know, uh, you know, it's not possible. They're not physically strong enough. It's never been done before. It's just not going to work. Well, my favorite, you're all going to die. They're all going to die there. That's that's As a, a statement of fact. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. um, and then there was the sort of dismissive kind of sideshow element where they're focusing yeah. on femininity and like, are there going to be squabbles among the crew and did everyone bring their lip gloss oh, and God, so on? Yeah. Th that's sort of shocking to see. I mean, look, I know. It's still that long ago. I, I, I know that women still face massive oh, yeah. and in many cases just horrendous oh, yeah. challenges and behavior from men. But 1989 to 1990, as you say, doesn't seem that long ago. And a lot of that was shocking yeah. to me. But you see, what's shocking to me is the way we reacted to it, which was, oh, well, you know, whatever, that we didn't. <sighs> That we didn't take more, weren't more insulted by it. I mean, maybe that's a good thing. We just kind of, we, it was white noise for us in the end. We mm. didn't listen to it or read it. We just ignored it. But, you know, Bob Fisher, when he came out with that article, they're just a tin full of tarts. I mean, that was right. that was something else. Um, and that's in the Guardian newspaper, which is a very well-respected newspaper in the UK. I mean, it's an insult to begin with. It's oh, yeah. got nothing to do with you in particular. Yeah. You know, it's just... Yeah, I thought he was very annoying. He felt he was being very <laughs> clever, I think. Um, but when we won coming into New Zealand, Bob Fisher, who I mean, Bob Fisher and I are now really good friends. But bless him, he wrote. He was the only yachting journalist that allowed his mind to be changed mm. as we went around. And I had so much respect for him for that. Mm. But the next article he wrote when we came into New Zealand for yachts and yachting was, "They're not just a tin full of tarts. <laughs> they're a tin full of smart, fast tarts." <laughs> oh, and we like. We took it, you know, small steps, we'll take what we can get. But then someone said, you know, the word tart is still in the sentence. I went, yeah, but you know, we're 
slowly getting there. But, you know, we've just rescued Maiden and uh, she when she came back to the UK, okay. Bob Fisher came down to see her in and he was wearing his Sunday best tweed suit with his new hips and his new knees. And he, <laughs> he just walked over to me. He's 80 something now. He said, oh, Tracy, I can't. I'm so pleased to see Maiden back and you've rescued her. And that's amazing. He said, can I do an interview? I said, absolutely, Bob. And we sat down and he said, tell me about girls' education. And I went, Bob, you have come a long way. <laughs> and he looked at me, he said, I had a good teacher. So, you know, yeah. one person at a time or whatever, but, you know, we had to keep going because of these changes that we needed to make. And we, we couldn't listen too much to, to what was going on. Yeah, and it doesn't erase the things that were said, but I it think that is how change, change happens. Minds. Yeah, yeah. yeah and also, you know, you remember 30 years ago, a lot of it was just force of habit. Chauvinism is, a, is a learned behavior. Uh, yeah. We go into schools now and you have boys going, I don't understand why girls wouldn't be equal to boys. And you're like, oh, please stay that age. <laughs> don't change, you know. So we, I think we understood probably beyond our years that... A lot of this stuff wasn't vindictive. It was just what people absolutely believed because right. they always believed it. So, I mean, you had a you had a, a beautiful early childhood. Then you had kind of a shitty adolescence where you had a nasty stepfather, brutal yeah. stepfather, and then ran away to Greece. Yeah. And then, you know, you were kind of lost for a while. And then there's this, through a series of events, this moment of conviction of like, okay, I've got to do this thing. And what's interesting is that, like, I mean, you're so young then. We don't get a sense there of what that moment exactly is like for you, how it is you knew that that was what you had to do. You know, you even talk to your mother. You say, "Can do you think I can do yeah. this? And she's like, I know you can if you set your mind to it, yeah. but you haven't previously followed through on things. Looking back on that now, what is that? What was that moment? Why was it just because the opportunity, was it a non-reflective sort of intuitive, just I've got to do this thing? Yeah. So I did start, as I say, for a selfish reason for me, because I wanted to navigate. But I think my mum was very sensible in what she said because, and I needed a bit of grounding then as well. Uh, you know, my mum was wise beyond her years. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I told her, you know, what do you think of this? What she meant by saying, if you're committed, you'll do it, but you've never stuck at anything. I think she was worried that, so it's fine to screw up your own dreams. If you have a dream and you right. make it up, that's fine. But if you are going to draw other people in and they're going to buy into your dream and make your, you know, mix their dreams with yours, you are responsible. And, right. and, and she meant don't involve people and do this big announcement and everything else if you're not willing to follow through sure. because you will hurt people. And I think she was so spot on. And that also made me think as well about if I screw this up, I've damaged this for women forever. So then, as I say, I mean, it just grew into something. Right. I mean, it grew way bigger than we had <laughs> ever imagined. That's for sure. Right. I mean, that finish was just extraordinary coming in and all those people. And we were like, wow. I mean, Howard yeah, they, did not tell us that there were that many boats. You came back to England and, and basically these are pleasure boats and all kinds of boats that are just coming yeah. to support you, hundreds to cheer you on. Yeah, hundreds of them. And then coming into Ocean <laughs> Village with 50,000 people. That was, we were, we were like rabbits in the headlights, you know. And you've also been at sea for three weeks. So it's, it's such a shock. You know, you almost feel a bit defensive. And then to walk to the yacht club from the boat for our reception should have been 10 minutes. It took over an hour. Wow. Because people were just, 
you know, and it was extraordinary and very un-British. Right, the British right. do not normally do things right. like, can I touch you? Can I hold, Can I shake your hand or can I give you a rose? But this was a just this extraordinary outpouring. And that's when I realized Maiden was so much more than women sailing around the world. Maiden represented to anyone who's ever been told that they can't do something, they don't fit in somewhere, they're the wrong color, the wrong religion, the wrong gender, that that doesn't matter. That if you, yeah. you know, you can work through the stuff and just ignore it and, and keep going. That's what this told me. When we got back, the letters and postcards, and my favorite ever letter was addressed to Tracy Maiden, England. <laughs> and it got to me. Oh, wow. Oh, I made it. That's it. I mean, seriously. Wow. Outpourings. People are, I think, very kind. And how amazing to take the time to sit down and write a letter to someone you've never met to pour out your heart, which has always made me quite emotional. And extraordinary look into the intimacy that that is, a handwritten letter, um, which we don't really do that much anymore. Right. One woman, 83-year-old woman, said, you've inspired me to get back in my boat after my husband died, you know, and go out sailing. And one guy who actually was came to see Maiden in New Zealand when she was in New Zealand this time, he, just, I, he said, I've been waiting here for three hours because I thought you might turn up. I just wanted to shake your hand and say... I met you when I was 14 years old. You told me to follow my dreams and I did and I am who I am now because of that. And I just went, wow, that finished me off. This connects to what I was going to ask, which is, I mean, you did a, a crazy thing. You, you jumped into it. You couldn't, there was no backing out after a certain point that had to be seen through, mm. but much of that has its own momentum and is happening kind of viscerally. And I think, you know, uh, physically in a sense where you really don't have time during it to reflect i mean especially during the journey during some of Mm. those difficult legs like to really reflect on what's happening to me what's happening to these people around me but how did having done that change you and change your life after that oh wow it had a profound change in my life Uh, it affected me deeply Uh, it affected all of us deeply i couldn't have been the person I am now without Maiden. She made me who I am and she helped me discover myself. And I think we've all said that at different times. Uh, The end was bittersweet because it was this massive celebration and then everyone disappeared. Because I had jobs to go to and other boats to join and races to do and the drop after that, you feel like you're falling off a cliff. And I, I did not deal with it well. I completely went to pieces. For a year, a couple of years, two years. You know, I pretty much had a nervous breakdown and I didn't ask for help, so, which is so... Because you were a tough, tough as nails I had to be person. Seen, yeah. well, I had to be <laughs> yeah. seen to be tough as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I couldn't do this race and then fall apart. Right. I could have so easily reached out to any of the girls and they'd have been there in a shot. But, you know, I, di- I didn't want to ask for help. And I think... It's understandable, yeah. Yeah, this is really one of the very few times... The movie has made me talk about this, uh, which is interesting because... It's also a time in the UK and I guess here as well where we're talking about mental health. Oh, yeah. And we're talking about not pretending you're okay. So this is an interesting time, you're not just the female side of things with what's going on at the moment, but also this awareness of your well-being. Right. And we didn't have that in at that time. It would have been seen as a weakling. Not to mention the additional sort of threat of showing vulnerability yeah. for women who yeah. have done this extraordinary exactly. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've talked to loads of guys and they all feel the same. You know, it's just this horrible moment where everyone you've lived and worked and it's not just the 
12 people on the boat, it's the 240 people that you've just sailed around the world with. They will just disappear. Right. Now, of course, with Facebook and modern connections, we're all connected again. But it took me a long time to mend and to want to go back to sailing again, which I did. But when I was ready, I, I took the time, I which I needed. Hmm. If we aren't honest about those things, it makes it much, much yeah. more difficult for many people yeah. to get through them because in the midst of it, when things get difficult, they are thinking to themselves, I'm the only one. Yeah. I'm a mess. Very I'm true. And also, you know, during that time, when I spoke to the girls about making this documentary, you know, the, the question really was, how honest are we going mm, to be about this? Mm. And I knew what they meant. And I said, oh, I think we should do it warts and all. I think people need to know that, you know, we all have moments of not knowing if it was going to happen or, you know, not feeling great about ourselves. And I think, as you've just said, that is so important, you know, that people don't think everyone else is OK. I'm the only one that's not. Yeah. Because I think we all go through times in our lives where we're not OK and we do need help, a hand or, a, you know, whatever. Um, and for me, it was the ability to say, yeah, I struggled. And that's important to say so that if someone else is having a battle, that they can either ask for help or realize that, you know, tough people are not necessarily tough people. This is There's this something is, else going on below the surface. Yeah, I, I once read Laurence Olivier's autobiography and he talked about how literally every time he went on stage, he felt like vomiting. He, he would have a, a near panic attack. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so, Tracy, I think this is as good a time as any to do the second part of the show. Okay. Uh, for the audience, this is where we watch surprise clips from Big Think's uh, interview archives, and they've been chosen by the production team. I have not seen them. Tracy has not seen them. And they're just conversation starters for the rest okay. of our talk. Okay. okay. So I am going to mispronounce this explorer's name. It is Erling Kage, I hope, K-A-G-G-E. Um, he's an explorer, art collector, publisher, and author. And the video is called, Does Life Feel Too Short? Get Off Your Ass. I think the original the problems we have in life is that we cannot sit alone in a room doing nothing. And I didn't come up with this theory. This was Blaise Pascal who wrote about it in the 1640s. Here in the States, People in average, they watch the telephone four hours every day, which means in the States you probably live, uh, live around 30,000 days in your life, which means that you sit watching your telephone 120,000 hours. And let's say only 80% of it is wasted, which leaves you with 96,000 hours. You're actually doing mostly bullshit all of your time. And then again, life will feel really short because in life you need variety, you need novelty, novel novelty. But when you keep on doing the same thing throughout the whole day, throughout your whole life, the conclusion of your life will be that it has been really short and very boring. Now to me, wonder is the very engine of uh, life. And I walked really long distances. Uh, it took me actually almost 40 years before I learned the pleasure of walking short distances. But I walked, for instance, to the North Pole with a, my friend Berger Oslan, all the way to the top of Earth. And then I also walked to Mount Everest Base Camp and eventually climbed all the way to the top of the mountain. And thirdly, I walked all the way to the South Pole uh, in total solitude. 
um, as the first in history. I didn't have any radio contact. I didn't talk to anyone on, on, on my trek. I was absolutely left to myself. And for the first couple of hours, maybe for a day or two, you have all this noise in your head. Although it's absolutely quiet around you, uh, you're thinking. And when you think, you think about the past, you think about the future. And all this, you know, is like noise. But then time passed by and you slowly start to think so much. You start much more to experience, to feel, being present in the moment. And that's when it's really great to be on an expedition that somehow the future doesn't matter, the past doesn't matter. All that matters is to be present in your own life. I've traveled to more than 100 countries in the world, and met many people in each place I have been. And my impression is that most people underestimate their own possibilities in life. Obviously, some people are overestimating their possibilities, but in general, people are underestimating their own possibilities. And for instance, when people tell me, I don't have time for silence, I'm too busy, I'm too important, uh, it's not for me, uh, I don't believe it. I think we all have time for some silence, and, but the reason we try to avoid silence is because silence can be a bit frightening and it can be a bit uncomfortable because silence is about getting to know ourselves uh, while noise, not only sounds, but all kinds of distractions and expectations and beeping and buzzings from your phone it's about running away from yourself. It's about forgetting yourself. It's about living through other people. It's about living through apps. And consequently, not fully, but partly, it is about wasting your life. It's about missing out on this huge opportunity to live a richer life. The first told story I know about, uh, about walking is the story when Adam and Eve actually walked out of paradise. And I really love that story because they left paradise and became history's first true explorers. Wow. Yeah, wow. Well, he's uh. a man after my own heart. <laughs> <laughs> One of the best pieces of advice my mother ever gave me was never stand still. Nothing is going to come to you. If you stand still, you're doing nothing, you're going nowhere, nothing's going to happen, hmm. ever. Keep putting one foot in front of the other. And even if you don't know where you're going, something will happen. Right. Something. Right. Now, you don't know if that's going to be good or bad, but it will take you somewhere of interest. And if you then think, oh, I think I'm going in the wrong direction, at least you're moving and you can change direction. Oh, I need to be going over there. That is something I have done throughout my whole life. I never stand still. Even if I say I don't know where I'm going quite, I'm sort of making this up as I went along, as I go along. If people say to me, how did you survive after bankruptcy? How did you survive that year right. of having no money, putting your mother in a home? looking after a five-year-old daughter, being a single working mum, you know, having to have meetings with accountants. I said because I was on a new journey. I think of everything in my life as a journey to somewhere. Gotcha. Now, I, I thought then that the journey was survival, but actually the journey was much more than survival. It was about getting to the next place where I could. there was a platform that I could jump off into the next part of my life. Sure. You know, it really opens you up to so many things. If, if you're just moving forwards, you sense opportunities, you right. open yourself up to the universe. Uh, another thing which I have really found in my life is that I've always found the right people in the right time in my life. Honestly, I turn around and there's the right person because okay. I am open 
I'm open to everything mm. and I'm walking and I'm looking and I'm traveling and I'm searching um, or I'm doing a project. It's an essential part of being human. And I do, I do worry that maybe one day we're going to lose this human connection because I can't live without human connection. I'm, I'm a people person. Right. I've also now become a people collector, like King Hussein, <laughs> which did, I didn't do on purpose. It's just I found it happening in my life. But and yeah. what sorts of people do you tend to collect? Ones who move forward? Interesting uh, people. <laughs> I like interesting people. Yes. And I know when I meet someone if I'm going to make an effort to keep them in my life. And I'm very proactive at doing that if I do. But also I tend to... So I've now put this new maiden project together and we've restored maiden and she's sailing around the world raising money and funds uh, and awareness for girls education oh wonderful and i look at my team and my team is this like this dream team and they are a lifelong they are the result of a life of experience of collecting people uh, i know every single one of them there's only one person on my team that i didn't know before we started this okay i trust them i understand them and we have come together to this, sort of do this unique project. It's all female, is it? No, we have men in our team. Uh-huh, um, uh-huh. It is an all-female crew on uh, the boat. Okay, okay. But, and this was an unexpected development, I announced at the London Boat Show that we'd be taking guests on board Maiden for the different legs that we're doing around the world. And uh, that way we'll raise money for our charity, which works with girls' educational charities. Hmm. And there was this hand went up at the back and it was a guy and he went, uh, will men be allowed to sail on Maiden? And I went, <laughs> oh, I hadn't actually thought of that. He said, don't you think it's a bit sexist not, not to allow men to God. sail on the boat? And I was like, actually, yes, it is. So I said, you know, you pay through the nose, you pay the money into my charity, you can sail on the boat. So we will have male guests on the boat. I mean, whether it's sexist or not, I think it's always funny when males and also and particularly white males raise their hand and are like, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm being denied my seat at the table. <laughs> that creases that me up, you know, but I had, uh, you know, Twitter is sometimes such an entertaining place. And I remember on International Women's Day this year when we released the film in the UK, that some bloke tweeted... <laughs> What about an International Man's Day? And some woman tweeted back, every that's, day that's for the past <laughs> 2,000 years has been International Man's Day. Shish, shish. <laughs> that's exactly right. The other thing he was talking about, there's an interesting contrast between two things there, right? So there's the like, keep moving forward, seek adventure, push your limits, right? And on the, on the other hand, there is silence, stillness, being able to be with yourself, which almost feels like meditation, like you could do it in a room, like in, in some ways it feels in contrast to the idea of like always moving forward mm. or, or that like you could easily imagine a person sort of distracting themselves throughout their whole lives by always moving forward in the sense of being on a treadmill. Mm. He's talking about two, oh, two, two things at once. Yeah. Well, I think they do go together. It took me a long time to learn to be on my own and to have that silence, as he calls it. I was never very good at being on my own uh, when I was younger. I guess when I had my daughter, I didn't change dramatically, but I I grew up a lot Mm. and I became much more mellow. I mean, I'm still not as mellow as my daughter. My daughter's the antithesis of me. She's the most laid back person I have ever met in my life. I mean, she's uh, unlikely just, to crew a, a boat of females you, around you the world. You couldn't pay her enough to get on the boat. No, she's a photographer. She works for me. She follows the boat, taking photographs. Yeah. She's calm. She's quiet. She's got this wonderful aura about her 
which I never had. You know, I was always this bustly, busy person, you know, and, and so it, we're very funny together. We have a great relationship. I've been the same Do you think it's mother, whole life. motherhood itself or the relationship with, with her energy that has taught it, you more me, melanin? It's, it's my relationship with her. Um, even as a baby, she had her own personality. And I remember thinking, because I didn't have much to do with babies before I had her. I was like, oh, no thanks, I could never manage a whole one. So meeting her was such a weird experience. And I thought, oh my God, you actually have your own personality. And then she's just grown up to be this. I mean, my mother said to me when I had her, should you wait now? You're going to get yours. And then my daughter turned out to be absolutely perfect. My mother was like, oh, for goodness sake, <laughs> that is so jammy. Um, yeah, my mother takes karma? Yeah, well, my right, mother yeah. takes after my daughter oh, okay. and I take after my grandmother, mm. who was a, yeah. What, um, what, what, what craziness did your grandmother get into? Uh, she was an amazing woman. Um, <laughs> she was an adventurer, an explorer, a liver of life, a lover of people. She completely fabricated most of her childhood. Doing my family tree was a frigging nightmare. Interesting. Um, and I'm very much, like that so I think having my daughter yeah did make me more reflective but it also taught me to be on my own because I was a single mum a single working mum for all of her life and I had to learn how to not just keep forging ahead and keep moving and how to process that and to, to make sure I have enough time for her enough time for me enough time for work right. and I for the first time probably in my life learned to sit in the evening without the television on because mm. the television is my prop it's my crutch it's noise it's okay you know, so you don't look at you don't look at a phone for 120,000 hours no. but the tv the tv's could, on because yeah. it's noise it's yeah, yeah. company it's it's people mm. and I was never very good at being on my own but I am very good at being on my own now and I enjoy my own company immensely and I'm very comfortable with who I am but that's taken a long time to get there I think it's great to say this, but I think it might be an age thing. I know very few young people who would find the time to or want to have those moments of silence. But as you get older, I think you value them more and more. Yeah, I could be wrong, but it seems to me that young people are also, I mean, they're both very busy, but they're also very amig um, amygdala driven. They're very yeah. like, they're fight or flight a yeah. lot of times. Like there's a, it's, yeah. it's scary. You know, you're in the midst of it and you're just trying to like figure it well, out. Well, you know, when you, you know. think about your frontal <laughs> cortex yeah. doesn't develop fully until you're 22, 23, right. which gives you complete understandings of the consequences of your actions. Right. I mean, I wish why I don't understand the criminal age in, in the UK is 10. I mean, that is just outrageous. Really? Yeah. So, so I mean, you tried I, as an adult criminal? Yeah. Oh, my God. After I was made bankrupt, I got a job with the police and uh, working in child protection, online child protection, which was fascinating. I then went and did a university degree when I was 47 and graduated when I was 50. And I did psychology. Which is also totally, totally inspiring. I was surrounded by mad teenagers and... They were just great. And it gave me, it reminded me, because I was, you know, I went through some dark places during the bankruptcy. It wasn't all smooth, kind of, oh, I'll just make it all right again. You know, mm. there, were, there were some moments where it was really hard. And the day I was made bankrupt, I had 19 pounds in my pocket. And to go and even have a job interview, I had to find the small change down the back of the sofa or borrow money from people, which were I you doing. Were you an uh, order of the British Empire yeah, at member, that point? Yeah, member of the British yeah, you Empire. Member, MBA, yeah, were yeah. You, you were at that yeah, yeah, point yeah. with 19 pounds in your pocket. Yeah. yeah. So, but my own raise your hand and be like, uh, yeah, no, no, no. That was, you was know, I made, <laughs> I made the decision to take the risk. So, you know, and I was warned that Qatar don't pay people and they're right. a nightmare. Right, and, right, right, right. you know, they do hold people illegally there. I knew all that. So, mm. you know, I thought well, we'd be different. Young people are on the move because they need to be. They're learning, they're sure. absorbing, they're experiencing, they're meeting, networking. 
that part of life, those formative years, is so or can be so amazing. Some young people aren't lucky enough to have that amazingness in their lives and they have chaos and destruction. And I used to work a lot with young people like that. And I think you have to learn to be quiet and still. It's not, I don't think it's a natural human state. Although I look at my daughter and she didn't need to learn it. She's one of those people that has a real calm about her. And I don't. Mm. Even in my most reflective moments, I'm still quite... Dum, dum, dum. Right. You know, got to move, got to keep... But yeah, no, so I, I have learned to give myself some time. And that is very beneficial. I think it's what they mean when they say that youth is wasted on the young, because oh, I, you totally. know, that while it is extremely exciting and perhaps necessary to keep moving forward when you're 20 years old, you, if you're not able to reflect on your life, yeah. in a sense, you're missing some part of it. Well, yeah. And I do think as well, <laughs> you know, I see young parents now who have grown up with technology on their phone with the child going, mommy, mommy, no, no, just wait a minute. Mommy's on the phone. I'm doing something. I see them in London walking their kids in pushchairs, you know, on their phone, losing that connection, that connectivity, that bonding, that, that experience of being with another person, just being with another person. And what I found so interesting the other night was we all went out, all the girls were all out. And I just happened to look around me and on almost every single table around us were people like this on their phones and, you know, not talking to each other. Yeah. And I thought, my God, we are a group of quite unusual people. We're all talking and laughing and cutting in and remembering and chatting. And, you know, that may be because we don't see each other very often. You know, I was very strict with my daughter when she was growing up with social media. Okay. Because I worked with the police for two years and learned about disappearances what is out there online. So I was, okay, I I knew what... I learned way, way more than I ever wanted to know, I have to say. You know, working in online child protection. Yeah, that cannot make it easier to be the mother of a daughter. It's grim. Yeah, yeah. Um, So therefore, you know, I learned what these policemen and women were telling me about how to limit her time on her phone to remind her, this is actually my phone. I paid for it. You're borrowing it. I Mm. also pay for the internet. And if you don't abide by the rules, you lose it. Not you don't get one or two chances. You lose it. So... She's always, she's grown up being quite responsible around that. And she does, I, I very rarely see her, like I see other young people, you know, so going on her phone, talk about, you know, I have, can't tell you how, in London how many times I nearly run over a teenager walking across the road like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and then you beep just to let them know I'm here. I've stopped. I'm not going to run you over. I'm here. And they go, <sighs> I think what he's talking about yeah. is getting harder and harder. For what it's worth, I think a lot of people are, thinking about these things, including some young people, you know, who are starting to become a little more awake to what's going on with with these devices because they're relatively new. Do you know, I think you might be right in a lot more areas than that. I think people are becoming awake. Mm. I think this year in particular, I have felt connections and seen connections that I have been waiting for for 30 years. Women have not always played well or worked well together. But there is something happening this year where people are waking up. And from feminism being a dirty word that no one wanted to admit to. Including you, Including me. Including me until I realized, oh, God, yes, I am a feminist. (laughs) I'm a huge feminist. But now that word has been... We've taken that back. We've rehabilitated it. And now men are saying, well, I'm a feminist too. I have daughters. I don't want them going through this. Alex will tell you exactly the same thing. I feel there's now a renewed connectivity, you know, especially with women. And 
we're waking up to the fact that we kind of lost that for a bit there. And, yeah. you know, so Maiden Factor, we're, we're connected to Women's March, Me Too, He For She, Time's Up. Men are part of this conversation. This phrase waking up, I think, is now becoming very relevant to politics, business, media. Psychology, uh, personal so, well-being. Yeah, we, we're, we're, we're sick of being fed stuff about what we all need to have. And these distractions that distract us from what the government's doing and what they shouldn't be doing and how we should be holding them to account instead of looking at our phones or watching the television or whatever. So yeah. I think waking up is a, such a good phrase. I think that's a good place for us to leave this. May we all wake continue up. to wake up. Absolutely. Tracy Edwards, uh, thank you so much for being on thank Think you. Again. Great questions. What a great, lovely conversation. I, thank you. I feel very much the same. And Maiden is in theaters now? 28th of June. 28th of June. Okay, so it will be there. And uh, I wish you luck with all your other journeys. Thank you so much. And that is our show for today. Tracy Edwards and her crew did an incredible thing. And I think she'd agree that courage isn't unique to those who go on daring sea journeys. It's a basic everyday part of being human. Facing anxiety, self-doubt, and other personal challenges is just part of what it is to be alive. And for most of us, these are personal, private struggles. I think stories like Tracy's can remind us that we're not alone. Speaking of not being alone, I'd love to hear from you. Come to jasongots.com, that's J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S, Dot com to send me an email or join my mailing list. I've got some amazing shows coming up for you. Next week, it's Turkish novelist and extraordinary human being Elif Shafak. I hope you can join me. <laughs>